I actually think that a lot of the time, what we may want even more than to feel that things are divided exactly evenly is to feel seen and appreciated for what it is that we are doing. I'm Amy. And I'm Abby. And as women, we are constantly comparing ourselves to others. But your life isn't supposed to look like hers. Being your best self means standing firm in your decisions and always being willing to grow with a purpose. We get vulnerable and real with an honest look into the challenges and triumphs we all face. Every woman listening gets the opportunity to choose what life looks like for herself. It would be an understatement to say that we have been looking forward to having today's guest back on, Dr. Molly Millwood. Our longtime listeners undoubtedly remember your episode, episode 10. Molly, it is our second most listened to episode of all time. And I wanted to tell you, it's the one that I received the most personal messages about. If you guys haven't heard it yet, you can go back to episode 10 and then rejoin us here. Molly holds a PhD in clinical psychology with advanced specialized training in marital therapy and intimate relationships. She's also a mom of two school-aged boys and the author of the wildly popular book, To Have and to Hold, Motherhood, Marriage, and the Modern Dilemma. Molly, we've added a lot of listeners to our audience since we last spoke. So I would love it if you started by telling everyone why you're so passionate about the work you do to support women that are in the thick of motherhood and also in relationship with their partners and themselves. Well, first, let me say thank you so much for having me back. And it really, it just makes me truly so happy to know that our first interview was just so well received by your community. And it's also been really wonderful to see how much you've grown. So thank you for letting me be a part of this again. In my role as a therapist, I am constantly bearing witness to people's messy interior worlds, getting insight into all sorts of different facets of the human condition that I think most people are not privy to, that really I'm privy to secrets clients are barely willing to share with themselves. And that is a tremendous honor. And it also means that I am so aware of how much suffering comes from people thinking that whatever it is that they are experiencing is unusual or that it reflects something being wrong with them. Because what I hear over and over again from people is so much of the same stuff. (laughs) You know, everybody is struggling with such similar things. And so what I feel passionate about is normalizing the struggles that people have. And in particular, the struggles that women have, the struggles that become all the more pronounced in motherhood for many women. I want people to understand that the kinds of experiences they're having in motherhood, in their marriage, their close relationships are not unique, are not representative of something being wrong with them. I just want people to feel sort of seen and understood and validated. What I feel a strong pull to do is sort of spread the word that the kinds of things people are struggling with really are so common and often even universal. And I think that that is just particularly true in the realm of motherhood, the kinds of themes that emerge so regularly among the clients that I see. It's just very clear to me that these are incredibly common. And that's why I felt the need to write a book about it (laughs) so that everyone would know and everyone would be able to sort of see themselves reflected in the stories in that book. And so Yes, I'm passionate about normalizing the struggles. I'm really passionate about helping women claim their legitimate anger and other emotions that they tend to have in order to affect change and in order to get more support. And then lastly, I would say that I'm really passionate about helping people understand the link, the very strong, inextricable link between individual well-being, particularly for women and their marriage or relationship health. Those two things just go absolutely hand in hand. So I would say those are my passions. Yeah. 
Well, your passions, your goals, they resonate loudly in your book, and we'll be peppering in questions on all of that throughout this interview. And just the secret suffering that so many women have, that so many women feel on a day-to-day -day basis, being able to just shine a light on that. And, you know, the old phrase, you're not alone, we say it so often, but it's so true. Mm -hmm. And in one of these pieces, we know that we can help prevent some of this. And right away in the introduction of your book, you say that our culture values a mother's skill at parenting over her well-being as an individual. So how have you seen the effects of this issue in your practice as a psychologist? And how can we, you know, as mothers, as friends of mothers, work to put more emphasis on our own well-being and less on our skills as parents? Mm. Well, I see this reflected in how women frame their problems in therapy and the language that they use and even their therapy goals. It comes across to me so clearly that women have internalized this faulty prioritizing that you were just mentioning, the prioritizing of their skill as mothers and even maybe a, their skill at being wives as well, being partners. It's evident to me that the idea that that is the priority has been internalized by women. And then that comes out in the way that they talk about what they'd like to work on. So for instance, you know, I have women telling me that they just want to learn how to have less of a short fuse with their children, or I want to learn how to be more patient and supportive and understanding toward my children. Or I want to learn how to be less annoyed with my husband. <laughs> you know, there's such an emphasis on what can I do better and a complete lack of emphasis in so many cases on needing more support. Like, what do I need in order to become a more patient person or not have such a short fuse with my kids and my husband and so forth? So sort of this idea that there must be something wrong with me and this is a skill that I don't have and that I need to develop in order to benefit the people around me, as opposed to I'm drowning, I need more support, I need more help, or even I'm drowning and these are my circumstances and there's not a lot that can be done about it, but, you know, it makes sense that I'm drowning. You know, there's no blame in that. There's a sort of self-validation. So I just don't hear that very often. I hear such an emphasis on building skills and, you know, just trying to be a better person for others. I feel like that just goes hand in hand with the concept of sacrifice, which is etched indelibly into motherhood right? Like the, the prototype of a good mother is the one who gives of herself tirelessly, who forgoes her own needs and wants in order to fulfill those of her child. So we're expected to be willing to sacrifice tremendously important things, including our own well-being, including our very selfhood, I would argue. There's that word selfless that just mm -hmm. makes me cringe because why would anyone want to be without a self? But somehow, you know, we've exalted this idea of selflessness as a virtue and one in particular that we ought to see in motherhood. I guess the way I'm answering your question is to say that I think that this is reflected in the very language that we use to talk about our struggles. It's, it's reflected in how we ask for help, at least in the context of therapy where, you know, I'm most familiar with that, where people are really focusing on how they can build their skills of patience, understanding, et cetera, and not so much how they can get more support. Oh, that answer really impacts me because I said those things to my therapist. So mm -hmm. I think that so many of us go on this journey. I don't know if there's a woman that doesn't have to have a journey with this because we were brought up to understand that the goal was to sacrifice ourselves. I remember when I was reading Shonda Rhimes book, The Year of Yes, and she said, I don't want a card that says I'm the most selfless mom. Mm. You know, where are the cards that say she was so passionate that it was mm. inspiring and things like that. So I've definitely learned this myself. I'm wondering if there are women that are having a really hard time owning that they get to be a person too, and they get to do things 
that they enjoy to do. How do you start with your patients to try to get them on that road to enjoying life for themselves again? I think a lot of people don't even know what they enjoy. So, you know, it would be helpful, if not always realistic, if people could just sort of start integrating the things that they once enjoyed and once sort of had, I don't know, some passion about or commitment to before they had children, can they start integrating some of those back into their lives? But actually what I encounter a lot is that women aren't even really clear on what it is that matters to them or what they enjoy. And that's a reflection of what you were just talking about, Amy, that the, you know, is so ingrained in us from an early age that the most important thing in life is to become a mother. So I do a lot of work with people just trying to really tune in to the times that they feel the most alive, the times that they have gotten immersed in something and just lost themselves or got into a state of flow, just trying to help people get in touch with what they enjoy, what brings them pleasure, what makes them feel enlivened, vibrant. So that's one sort of track to go down of just trying to pay attention to those things. The other thing I suppose is more practical, and this probably relates to bigger issues that I'm guessing we'll talk about having to do with prioritizing the self versus prioritizing marriage and what happens when those two things feel like they're in competition with each other. I do think that women on a practical level simply need to start doing less around the house for the family and lead with what do I need? What do I want right now? And just go do that thing, whatever it is, or, you know, take the hour away from their typical duties and do something that's just for them. So what I'm getting at here is that these are really difficult practices to implement for a lot of women, not everyone, but a lot of women are going to struggle with this. And I don't have an easy answer, but I can just say, you know, making a commitment to practicing these things is where to begin. And it does take a practice, especially for personality types that have been doing it for a very, very long time. It can be hard to implement that into your life day after day. Even in that last question with doing less for others, like it's like, oh, that's so simple, Molly, to say like, oh, just do less for others, do less around the house. But if you actually can put that into practice, that's where you can really start to just feel whole again. I was having a conversation just in DMs this morning with somebody who was saying, how do I even begin to like work through these types of things? And I was like, I get it. Take the nap while there are still dishes that need to be done. Go for the walk, even though you have an inbox full of emails, like do the thing for you, because when you come back, you'll feel more rejuvenated and be able to keep on going with the things that life is always going to be pulling at. And that's something I think you just don't learn until you do it. You know, I'm guessing, you know, listeners might hear me say do less and there's like sort of viscerally having a negative reaction to that. Like, how can I possibly do that? And that can't possibly be a good thing. But when you truly allow that experience for yourself again and again of walking away from the to-do list or walking away from the child or the partner and focusing on the self, you will learn sort of experientially, oh, this actually does allow me to be a better version of myself for my children, for my partner. Mm -hmm. And another piece that we know our community oftentimes says is that they feel swallowed up by this pressure to you know, enjoy every moment of your motherhood experience. But your teaching emphasizes that not every part of motherhood is going to be enjoyable and that this just needs to be okay to voice out loud. How does opening up about this dialogue help women in their struggle of feeling that pressure to you know, like soak up every single moment with their kids? Mm. I think opening up about this makes all the difference in the world. I, you know, I think loving our children does not translate to loving every moment with our children or even loving most moments <laughs> with our children. So that's one thing that just needs to be separated out. There's such a tendency to say, I love my children, but, and then list all these other things as if we have to, you know, make it clear, first of all, that the love is there. Of course, the love is there. And I think there's very little in life that grips us and fills us with unwavering pleasure at all times, you know, like most things in life that matter to us and that we choose, such as marriage and children, are usually a really messy mix. 
with some moments of joy and pleasure, and then a lot more moments of difficulty, frustration, boredom, irritation. So I just think that separating out the two, of course, the love is there, but that doesn't mean the loving every moment is remotely realistic. You know, this subject comes up a lot in my conversations with people. And something I've been reflecting on is that I do think personality plays a role here in terms of the extent to which we can, quote unquote, soak up every moment. Because I think there are a lot of moms who maybe it's introversion, maybe it's type A, who really just don't take it easy <laughs> in, in general in their lives and who are kind of more oriented toward the to-do list or more oriented toward kind of self-reflection, contemplation. And of course, people like that are going to have a much harder time soaking up the chaos of time with their children and experiencing that as something pleasurable. Whereas women who might lean a little more toward extroversion, not so much type A, are going to ha probably have an easier time soaking up more of those moments. So I encourage people to really think about their personality and to sort of draw a sense of validation from knowing, oh, there's a reason that I can't just sit around on the floor with toys scattered everywhere with my kids and be experiencing that as nothing but pleasurable. Like that just doesn't really line up with my personality. I think that's a really important thing for people to be able to realize. I love that you said that because as our listeners know, Abby is our type A perfectionist, list maker, extraordinaire, and I <laughs> have always leaned the other way, but it is something that has been with us far before kids were. So when I'm fielding all these questions and people are asking me how I let my kids make such a mess or how I let them play so dangerously or whatever it is, mm -hmm. It's hard because the true answer is it comes so natural to me. Mm -hmm. My parents parented that way. I was, you know, making that huge mess. I was outside endless hours, you know, doing whatever. So I feel really comfortable. And so I think it gets hard when our society, our community focuses so much on comparison. We're always thinking that the mother outside of us is doing a better job than we're doing. Mm -hmm. We're all different. We all have our different strengths and, and different things that are challenging for us. That's right. Yeah. So the other thing I was going to say, just in response to this question, I'm not, so I'm not necessarily responding to what you just said, Amy, but I've been reading this book called I'll Show Myself Out by Jesse Klein. Are you familiar with it? I haven't read that. So the subtitle is Essays on Midlife and Motherhood. And it's incredible. It reminds me of my book only like a thousand times funnier because she's a comedian, a comedy writer, essentially. And she's sort of laying bare all these truths of motherhood, but in an incredibly funny way most of the time. And then there are, there are these really poignant moments mixed in. And in the very first chapter, she talks about motherhood as being a hero's journey. You know, she talks about sort of the typical hero's journey, which is very male-centric, you know, that a man gets the call to go do something really important that's going to save humanity. And, you know, he risks his life and goes off to some faraway land to be brave and bold and good things happen. And meanwhile, you know, any female characters are left behind kind of cleaning up the house while he goes in <laughs> and becomes a hero. And what Jesse Klein is proposing is that for women, motherhood is a hero's journey, only we're not going to some faraway land. We're going deep down within to mm -hmm. like the depth of our strength and learning things about ourselves that we never thought we would learn. And the thing that's like really, you know, a little unorthodox for her to say, but that I just absolutely love is that, and as I'm talking, I'm actually looking to see if I can find this in the book, that she says a mother's heroic journey is not about how she leaves, but about how she stays. So she's talking about how with the daily challenge of parenting, especially a newborn or a very young child, that there's often this fantasy about just walking away. Like this is so hard. It requires so much of me. I am so depleted. I don't know if I can stand another minute of this. The fantasy is that you walk away, that you just leave it all behind. 
And of course, the vast majority of us never do that. But to acknowledge that that fantasy exists, I think, is very, very important. And in that way, what she's saying is that every single day we're doing something heroic. And really, the heroism is in our choice to stay day after day after day and give and give and give to our children. So this is an example of the kind of thing that comes from having a more open dialogue about how we can't possibly savor every moment. You know, I feel like when people read this chapter in her book, they're going to say, I now have permission to acknowledge that like huge parts of parenting are a total drag. (laughs) And I get some credit just for staying day after day and doing my job. Mm, I love that because I think one of the big issues here is that mothers are so hard on themselves. You know, we're hard on ourselves for maybe if we had an interaction with our child that we regret later in the day, we're hard for ourselves for even having a thought. And so that makes it really hard to enjoy the parts that we do enjoy or to even enjoy our lives. If we're guilting ourselves for every single thing, which is something that I think comes up a lot is the guilt that women feel while they are doing this role. As you're mentioning, it really is often taking us away from moments that would otherwise be really pleasurable. And now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. As a licensed clinical psychologist, Molly Millwood is no stranger to the conversations we were having in this interview. These are the conversations that Amy and I wanted to start when we began this podcast, and we wanted to bring up to help people not feel so alone. But we know that books and podcast episodes, they can really only take it so far. And if you have been going through the motions but are continuing to feel the weight of motherhood, marriage, life in general, it might be time to speak to a licensed clinical therapist yourself. What we love about BetterHelp is that it's less expensive than conventional therapy, and you can use your FSA or HSA dollars to pay for the tab. In addition, there's no waiting lines or being in awkward rooms before your appointment. You can do it right from the comfort of your own home. And you can be matched within 24 hours with a therapist that will be perfect for the life that you have ahead of you. So if you are taking your mental health seriously or want to start now, please reach out to betterhelp.com slash herself, and you do get 15% off your very first month. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash herself to get the mental health therapy that you deserve. This next question is really interesting because of the conversation we've already had, (laughs) but I'm going to ask it anyways, because it is something that I've experienced. So our listeners are at all different stages of motherhood. Some are pregnant right now. There's first time moms. There's moms that have small babies and toddlers, and there's also moms that have school aged children or beyond. Something that I've been really feeling lately our youngest just turned three. And a big part of me feels like I'm able to enjoy much more of my mothering. Everyone needed me for so long. I was constantly feeding someone. There was someone on top of me. I was carrying someone. Like For me, that was really challenging. And now there's several times throughout the weekend or the day where I'm able to look at my family doing something and I can just be with them and enjoy it. I can see it a little bit more. Before Mm -hmm. I couldn't see it because I was under it and now I'm kind of back into it. So Mm -hmm. I was wondering, what is your idea on this take of that things are feeling so much better? For other women, do you feel like maybe that's not gonna be the case? Or did you also experience more of a sense of, feeling like you're yourself again, because you don't always have someone on top of you. Mm -hmm. I absolutely resonate with what you're saying and had a very similar experience. And I feel like I can safely say that is the norm rather than the exception, meaning it does get better. It does get easier. And I think the reason that I can say that confidently is because What is so relentless in the beginning is the loss of personal freedom. And I think that's essentially what you're describing when you talk about everyone needing me. There's always somebody on top of me. 
you know, there's so many things that change in early motherhood, but one of them, and I wrote quite a lot about this in my book, is this really near total loss of personal freedom. And that part really is unique to the early phase of motherhood, having a newborn, having an older baby and a toddler. At those particular periods, constant or near constant vigilance is required from us. And that changes. You know, there does come a time where after we've become completely exhausted trying to keep these small people alive, (laughs) we start to see them developing their independence and we can actually stand back and have a little bit of breathing room. And they actually grow into people that we have more fun with, people that we find ourselves laughing with and even having really interesting conversations with. So, you know, I think that certainly there are things about older children that are really difficult. And I can say as the mother of a teenager and an almost teenager at this point, that the kinds of problems that arise in parenting older children can be intense, can be, you know, truly very difficult. So in no way would I say parenting becomes easy at some point. There's no easy, but easier, absolutely. And I think it is because our personal freedom gets restored to a degree. We can breathe, we can attend to our own needs in ways that we simply cannot when we have newborns or small babies or even toddlers. So yes, it does get better. I would say in the meantime, get to the moms who are still in the thick of it to try to get curious about the metamorphosis that's underway. Like really have a sense of wonder about what all is changing, what's getting unlocked or rising to the surface. I should have, you know, earlier when you were asking me about my passions, another one that comes to mind is helping people reframe the motherhood transition as a metamorphosis, a complete and total metamorphosis, as opposed to some sort of temporary blip. So I like to think about how motherhood sort of unlocks these channels in us that were previously closed. And with the benefit of hindsight, we can look back and say, oh, it was in that early stage of motherhood that this you know, particular thing started to get unlocked in me or this particular issue started rising to the surface or I got this idea and later I ran with it. When you're in that early phase, it's very hard to see or feel that that's what's happening. So that's why I'm saying, try to get curious about it, like sort of trust that even though the metamorphosis involves all kinds of gains and all kinds of losses, that there also are all these unknowns and mysteries that are unfolding. And that's very real, even if you can't feel it at the time. Molly, I think that all the women who have crazy toddlers and tiny newborns and are just in the thick of it, they can finally breathe with that answer. Like we aren't asking for easy, but easier, like that's Mm -hmm. something that it just gives us hope. It makes us feel like we can keep on moving forward and that we don't have to love every single moment of this, like you had answered in a previous question. And in our very first episode with you, episode 10, you go into more detail on how this metamorphosis isn't just temporary. It's not just a change for a few months. It's this total change of who you are. And it was such a beautiful answer. So for those who want more details on that, definitely listen to Molly's episode, episode 10. So going into something a little bit different here, you don't only teach on lessons in motherhood itself, but also how motherhood changes our marriages and our partnerships. And something that we know our listeners struggle with is that, well, Amy and I have both struggled with this as well, is this idea that we either have to choose between our own personal contentment or our relationship with our partner. And we know so many women feel that there's not enough time, like there's not enough hours in the day to take this intentional time for themselves. And also have intentional time with their partner. What would you say to the mom who feels like she has to choose between the two and how do the two actually relate to each other? Well, first of all, I think they relate so intimately to each other that they shouldn't even really be treated as separate, as if the time that you prioritize for yourself has no bearing on your partnership or vice versa. 
That being said, I think that on the face of it, the sense of having to choose between the two is totally real, that you know, there truly may not be time for both, certainly not in any given day, often not even over the course of a week <laughs> or an even longer period of time. You know, do we feel, oh, I can do both. I can carve out time that's just for me and I can carve out time for my partner. So truly, it often is on the face of it, a choice between the two, but uh, there's so much more going on behind the scenes that I think that's where we can get a little bit of relief from that feeling that if we choose one, we are neglecting the other. An example I can give just from my own life, you know, recently we had a whole lot going on and there was clearly a deficit in both realms. You know, I needed some time for myself and I also felt disconnected from my husband and I felt that sort of familiar conflict of which of these should I prioritize you know, he probably wants me to go spend some time with him this evening, but what I really want is to just go be by myself. And knowing myself as well as I do at this point, I knew that I needed to prioritize time with myself first, because that so greatly affects the self that I bring to him for that time that we spend together. So I'm just pointing out here this difference between the initial should, you know, like I'm attuned to my husband, of course, I'm thinking he wants me to go spend time with him. He's an extrovert. He doesn't ever need alone time. <laughs> so I know what his default stance is. He's just like waiting for me to be available. I should do that. But what is actually the thing I desire? It's to spend time alone. And once I gave myself that time alone, I felt much more sort of internally resourced to bring myself to him and spend some quality time with him. And it might work in the opposite fashion for someone else. The point being, the two are so closely tied together that it really isn't that one is happening to the exclusion of the other. And that I hope will, as I said, bring some relief to the mom who's feeling like I have to choose between these two and I don't know which one is the right choice. They're both the right choice. And again, it's largely about knowing yourself, you know, knowing what you desire, what you need, and being able to give yourself that as opposed to doing the thing that you think is expected of you or that you should do. Yeah, it's knowing yourself. And then for me, it was giving myself the permission to choose mm -hmm. myself because mm -hmm. in the beginning of motherhood, I felt like it was reasonable to take time away to work on Drew and I, like to go on a date together like that uh -huh. felt important for the family uh -huh. but i didn't have that same permission for myself to take time away for just me that's completely changed since the last time we spoke and drew always says he's like when you come back from you know even for me going to dinner with girlfriends it's like i just feel like myself during mm -hmm. that time and then i come back to my partner re-energized and just exactly. feeling so much better. Exactly. Yeah. I think my husband likes the version of me that he gets after I've done whatever it is that I need to do for myself. So he really has learned also not only to let me do what I need to do, but he's sometimes even in the role of saying, I think you need some alone time. And there's nothing snarky about that. He's not saying like, <laughs> go away because you're cranky, but he's really aware that yeah. that is an ongoing need of mine, something that's sort of in short supply because of our busy lives with two kids. And he tries to set me up for success by saying, why don't you take some time for yourself? And I'm certain that that is <laughs> because it benefits him because he really does enjoy me more if I've gotten to kind of fill my tank in that way. And now let's take a break from our podcast sponsor, which is Rothy's. Amy and I have been huge fans of the Rothy brand even before they were podcast sponsors. I remember when my friend got her first pair of the pointed toe flats and I immediately wanted to go out and grab a pair. They have a ton of iconic head turning designs. They have bright colors and then they also have the trusty old favorites that, you know, Amy and I always tend to go towards. What I personally love most about them, besides the style and that they work with every outfit, is that they are insanely comfortable. They fit almost like a slipper. From the second you put them on and take your first step, you're like, okay, this, this is how a shoe is supposed to fit. And also why I love them is because the Rothy's brand in general takes sustainability to the next level. Their products are made with 
plastic water bottles, and they've repurposed around 125 million water bottles so far. So if you want to try out a new favorite pair of shoes from Rothy's, make sure to go to rothys.com slash herself. That will get you $20 off your first purchase for whatever you have your eye on. Again, that's rothys, R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash herself. And now back to our show. And Molly, we took questions for you when it came to parenthood and couplehood. And there were definitely some common themes. I think if I asked you to predict them, you could probably do so, but I'm just going to tell you what it was. The first one that came in over and over again was this talk of the invisible load. So for me, what I'm seeing is that now we have a generation of moms that has more language around what they're feeling. Like they feel the demands, but there is this gap between the feeling of it and the knowing of it, and then the execution of getting your partner to share more responsibility, whether that is visible or invisible. I want to know, do you have any advice for couples that are struggling with this, but they both do want to take a step forward in a direction where the mother would feel better? Hmm. There's so much to say about this topic, (laughs) the topic of invisible labor, the mental load of parenting, which is just, you know, an enormous proportion of total parenting for mothers. And actually, I've heard it talked about with some language recently that I really appreciate. One referred to it as household worrying. (laughs) Who's doing the worrying about all things pertaining to the household and the children? And another way that I heard it talked about recently was that what women are doing is always trying to mitigate future risk. What it is that we're thinking of is what could go wrong, (laughs) How can I prevent things from going wrong? How can I decrease the likelihood that there will be a problem of some kind or that someone's health and well-being will suffer in some way? So, you know, I'm introducing this language here just because I want to capture exactly how much anxiety comes along with this. And I really mean sort of normative anxiety. I don't mean, you know, if you're carrying the mental load, you probably have an anxiety disorder. I mean that there is an undertone of worry. There is an undertone of stress and anxiety about what's going to happen if I don't attend to all of these things. And no wonder women are so tired, right? Like carrying a load like that, that isn't just cognitive. It has an emotional sort of valence to it. That's exhausting. I just want to underscore the seriousness of this issue And I also want to say that the invisible labor is the reason that even though childcare and domestic duties are now being more evenly shared between men and women, still not evenly, but more evenly than they used to be, that there is still this tremendous burden on women, that there's often this discrepancy where men are saying, yes, we share things equally. And women are saying, no, I don't think so. That's not what I feel. Invisible labor is the thing that reconciles that, that makes sense out of that discrepancy. You just speak on it so eloquently. And if people don't understand, or if their partner doesn't understand the word invisible labor, being that word, you know, household worrying. Even as somebody who is married to a risk manager, like my husband, he literally is the person who puts in insurance plans day after day with clients in order to mitigate their risk at work. But then coming home, Like he doesn't see that. He's not doing that at home. I'm the one who's mostly in charge of that. Most women in the male-female relationships are the ones who are in charge of mitigating all that future risk. And it can be Mm. so tiring. Like no wonder we are walking around so depleted and so tired all day long. This can lead into scorekeeping. And I, I mean, I like to say that I'm a former scorekeeper, but I know it still comes up. And to give listeners some context, it happens often in our family. I mean, Colin will say, Abby, I have cooked dinner five nights this week. And then I'll jump in and say, yes, you have, but I've also picked up the kids, dropped them off at school, made sure they had everything for school, water bottles, lunches, backpack, folders, sign this sheet, the list goes on. And when I was telling Amy about this, I was talking about how it's so hard because he has a lot of the big scene tasks where I have a lot of the small unseen. 
unless they're forgotten types of tasks. So can you help us out with this part, Molly? (laughs) I will sure try. And you're right that the scorekeeping issue is so closely tied with the invisible labor issue. So before I address that question about the scorekeeping, I do want to make sure that I answer the question about what what can couples do who are struggling with this issue of invisible labor and how can we allow women in particular to have a lighter load and to feel better about this situation. It's so interesting that you bring up this example of your husband, you know, doing risk mitigation for work, and yet somehow that's not the role that he's in at home. Because one of the things I read about this at one point was that if you ask couples why it is that women are doing so much more of the scheduling, planning, mitigating of future risk, weighing options, et cetera, that a lot of times both men and women will say, well, she's just better at it than I am. And so there's this myth that women are naturally better at planning and organizing, and that's the reason that they do the calendar, for instance. But it is absolutely a myth. Actually, what's happening is that women are just expected to do it, and so they get better at it over time, (laughs) simply because they're the ones doing it. So after a while, it may be true that the wife in a heterosexual couple is better at the planning, organizing, keeping the calendar, but that's only because she's had so many years of practicing. So I just think, Abby, your situation where that's what your husband does for a living and yet somehow that's not what he's doing in the home is like, that's really, really telling. And all of this is because women are still ultimately responsible for family outcomes, for you know a child's development, a child's health, more so than men are. Meaning that if something goes wrong, that will feel to the mother like a reflection of her parenting more so than it will to the father. And that will be the judgment of others as well. That's just the sad truth of it. So women are feeling more pressure to carry that mental load, to keep up on everything so that there isn't something that goes wrong down the line and is essentially felt by her to be her fault and experienced that way by other people as well. A very sort of practical piece of advice about this is to make the invisible visible. I think that's really the work here. So Abby, you were talking about how the things that you do are often unseen and that the things that Colin does are very visible. How can you make your work more visible? And one way of doing that is simply to write it down. Write down a list of all the things that you do, all the things that you anticipate, that you ponder in order to make a decision, what happens once you make that decision. So laying it all bare to be seen by the other, I think is a really, really important part of that. And then the other thing I'll say, which goes back to one of my earlier remarks is to do less like basically talk more, do less. So if you let go some of the things that are typically yours to carry, there will be consequences. It will be messy and there might even be some judgment, but can you tolerate that in the short term in order to have a long-term gain? And so I think the answer is yes. You know, there are some things we can tolerate like a negative consequence of letting something go We just have to think carefully ahead of time about what that's going to be. We obviously can't drop the ball about something super important where, you know, somebody's going to get hurt or there's going to be lasting consequences that can't get undone. But can you let some things go so that your partner learns, oh, this is something that she's always taking care of and I never even realized. There was some article I read at some point about, and this might even have been recently, I'm not sure, so maybe you guys saw it too, but... Something about a husband (laughs) commenting that it was amazing how the the soap dispenser never ran out of soap. And it was because his wife was always refilling it. Like he seriously thought that it was just like miraculously never running. Wow, it's amazing that we still haven't run out of soap. And this made the wife furious, you know, like sent her into this terrible mental space of contemplating divorce because of how much she's always doing all the time. 
But that's a really good example of something that has, you know, almost zero consequence. If you're the person always filling that soap dispenser, just don't fill it. And pretty soon it becomes clear that that was something you were doing and that maybe somebody else should step up and do it. So again, my two points here are make the invisible visible, which means talking, talking, talking. I think I said in our first interview a couple of years ago that it's very helpful to say, can I just give you a snapshot of what it looks like for me right now inside my brain? Here are all the hundreds of things I'm thinking of. So talk, 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 write things down, show your partner a list of all the things that are on your mind all the time. And then, you know, do less. So talk more, do less. Policy changes is a whole other thing, but I just want to throw that in there. Like, of course, we need some changes in our larger sort of societal policies to really make appreciable change when it comes to this. And we're not there yet. So getting back to your scorekeeping question, which, you know, like I said, closely related here. If we could get away from tallying and comparing and instead go toward expression of feelings and gratitude, I think that that would go a long way toward overcoming the scorekeeping. This scorekeeping is always going to be a temptation, by the way. Like, I just want to sort of normalize what, you know, this tangle that you guys get caught up in. It's just so normal. It's so tempting. But I actually think that a lot of the time, what we may want even more than to feel that things are divided exactly evenly is to feel seen and appreciated for what it is that we are doing. So I'll give another example from my life. You know, the arrangement that we have in this house is that my husband does like 95% of the cooking. And I do all of the bill paying, all of the school stuff, everything pertaining to our kids, you know, medical, dental, orthodontic needs, et cetera. There's all kinds of things I could say about our division of labor, but I'm just giving a quick example. <laughs> so he does 95% of the cooking. And what I am very careful to do is express my gratitude for the fact that he does so much of the cooking. So you really won't catch us having this exchange where he says, do you realize I've made dinner, you know, six out of the last seven nights? And then I say, well, yeah, but do you realize that I paid all the bills and I made three different appointments for our kids this week and I filled out those forms? We don't get caught up in that hardly ever. And I truly believe the reason for that is that we are both expressing genuine gratitude for what the other one is doing. So when I say, I am so thankful that you're making dinner so much of the time, I really mean it. I am. And I go into detail. Like, it is so nice that I don't have to think about what to make for dinner. It feels so incredibly nurturing to come home and find that dinner is already underway. I love seeing you in the kitchen doing your creative thing. You know, like I will say all of these things because they're real and they're detailed and specific. And I think he really feels it. And he likewise will say, thank you so much for always staying on top of the bills or, oh, I'm so grateful that you took care of that appointment because it wasn't even on my radar. You know, those are the kinds of exchanges that we have on a very regular basis. And the other thing that we do is that we occasionally give each other breaks from the thing that is always our territory. So I say he cooks 95% of the time because 5% of the time, approximately, I cook. And when that happens, he'll also say, thank you so much for saying that you'll cook tonight. It's going to be really good to have a break. Or, you know, I make the coffee every single night. And it's no big deal, but after a while, it feels a little tedious. Like I'm setting up the coffee maker and, you know, going through these motions. And every once in a while, he'll do it. And I'll say, thank you so much for making tomorrow morning's coffee. I'm so glad that that's out of the way and I don't have to do it, you know? So this is sort of an atmosphere of gratitude that I think acts as a huge buffer against the scorekeeping trap. And I wrote about gratitude in my book. That's how important I think it is. And it really has to go beyond thank you. It has to be, as I said earlier, some really heartfelt expressions of why you appreciate the thing that the other one is doing. I also will just sort of throw in one other thing about, you know, the scorekeeping and the invisible load issue sort of tied together. And that is 
the more we can designate entire realms to one person, the better we'll do. So instead of an individual task, could you think about realms that belong to one partner or the other? Like you have the medical realm and I have the dental orthodontia (laughs) realm, or you have the laundry and that includes everything, including making sure we have laundry soap, right? And I have the, I don't know, what's another, I have the cooking or I have the grocery shopping, right? So you're designating entire realms instead of really specific individual tasks, which again, can sort of lead back into scorekeeping. I did this many things and you only did this many. Is that helpful? That's very helpful. And Drew and I have found the same thing to be true. First of all, what you said about gratitude was really inspiring because I think most of us could do a better job of seeing what our partner does, you know, just as much as we want them to see what we are doing to compliment them on what they are doing well. But then Drew and I too, when we have owned big segments of the things that it takes for our family and our house to run, things have gone much better for us. It's all of these like lessons learned along the way, which, you know, Molly, her kids are older. She's been married longer, you know, same for Drew and I, maybe for some of you. So it's, this wasn't how Drew and I were right at first. We were very much having the scorekeeping battle, especially after our second child joined us and he was a baby and we had a toddler. It was like, that was where resentment was bubbling. Like you could feel the climate was resentment. It was not gratitude. Mm -hmm. So growing as a couple and getting to a place where you guys are able to split things up better and feel grateful for each other. Like that is some adult work right there. (laughs) And as always, Molly, we could talk to you forever, but we won't take up any more of your time. We just have one more question. As I was telling you ahead of the interview, I was really excited for you to answer this next question about friendships because it's something that we hear a lot of our community struggles with. As we all know, motherhood changes our relationship with ourselves and with our partners. And we've talked about that in our interview but it can also change our relationship with our friends. You were quoted in a Washington Post article about why parents, especially new parents, need to nurture their friendships. Can you share your insights on this topic and also what you would say to the new mom who feels like she doesn't have the capacity to keep up with her friendships? Well, where my mind goes right away with this question is that... I wouldn't even be asked to answer a question like this if motherhood were occurring in a village context. You know, the the, it takes a village phrase. If motherhood were being carried out and experienced side by side with other women and with their consistent, you know, instrumental and emotional support, then everyone's friendships would actually deepen across the transition to parenthood. But that's not how motherhood is done in our society. It's done in relative isolation. Most of us take our newborns home to a very lonely daily life where we are enduring truly alone all of what is hard about brand new motherhood. And that's not how it's supposed to be. Social disconnection is its own pandemic, you know, one that was worsening well before COVID arrived. And lots of people have been kind of sounding alarm bells about that. And I talked about it a lot in my book. So social isolation more broadly is an enormous problem. And then specifically to the transition to parenthood, it's a primary reason that there's so much needless shame and suffering among new moms. So I just kind of wanted to point that out, that there's something sad about just being asked to convince people about the importance Mm -hmm. of friendship in new motherhood, when it should be something that just happens naturally, and yet it, it really isn't. So I guess what, you know, in terms of sharing some insights about this, what I can speak to is something known as the female effect, 
which is that the majority of social support that is so vital to women's well-being comes from their connection with other women. And the reason that those connections are so powerful and play such an important role in well-being is because something's happening at the physiological level, and most of us are unaware of this. So when we are face-to-face with another woman that we trust, and of course this applies to, you know, a woman could be sitting with a man as well. If that person is somebody that she's close to and that she trusts, we would see something similar. But I really want to focus on the female effect in particular because it's fascinating. (laughs) That when we're face-to-face with another woman, oxytocin starts flowing. And oxytocin, of course, is the bonding hormone. It's the same hormone that's released during childbirth and breastfeeding that makes us feel in love with our babies. So when we are you know, having this sort of flow of oxytocin, that means that our sense of empathy for the person that we're with or the people that we're with is increased. Our fond feelings for those people are increased. But also, and this is the really important part, cortisol, which is the stress hormone, decreases. So that release of oxytocin, the empathy, the fond feelings, all of that is actually serving to counter stress and could be thought of essentially as an anti-inflammatory. So this is so vital to women's well-being. And yet, as you're pointing out, it's what often falls by the wayside in new motherhood. So I really think that we need to think about our female friendships in particular, and really all friendships as being something sort of like a massage (laughs) or a meditation retreat in the sense that it is truly acting as an anti-inflammatory. It's restoring some equilibrium in our bodies and increasing feelings of well-being and ultimately increasing a sense of bonding and belonging when we need it most. I'm just like, wow, I don't know how we got to the point where I think a lot of women, myself included, decided that that was the thing that we were willing to give up when motherhood and life and you know our romantic partnership mm. needed our attention mm-hmm. i kind of easily gave up i was still communicating with my friends like text messages and things like that but i wasn't seeing them right the text messages or being connected on social media is truly not a substitute for face to face connection that's something that's backed up by research So I think a lot of times people feel like, oh, it's okay that I'm not spending time with friends because, you know, I'm I'm a part of all these great communities on social media, or I'm texting a couple of friends constantly. And that's, of course, better than nothing. And those things Mm -hmm. bring their own rewards, but they really are not the same. You know, I also let my friendships fall by the wayside. And I think, you know, there's a very simple explanation, which is that, of course, we are running on fumes in early Mm -hmm. motherhood, especially. And it's really hard to prioritize something that feels optional at a time when there seems to only be enough time for the things that are essential. So I think that's why we have to shift our thinking toward viewing face-to-face time with good friends as essential, not optional. I love that this is a reminder for all of us, but also that you really can take action and start to prioritize again. You know, I've come so far in this realm. I know it's possible. I know your friends are probably wanting to see you, you know, still and again. So I do love that you're leaving us with this. And you and I have both experienced reintegrating this into our own lives. Mm-hmm. Molly, I would love it if you told our audience where they can find more of you and your work. Instagram is probably a great place to start. Molly Millwood PhD is where you can find me on Instagram. And I'm (laughs) forever trying to be better about posting, but it doesn't come very naturally to me. So there's not a whole lot there, but every once in a while, inspiration strikes and I will write something that's you know, essentially related to the themes in my book about women's mental health and well-being and our close relationships. So there's a lot of good stuff there. And you can also find links to check out my book 
which is available wherever you like to buy books. And then you could also go to my website, which is mollymillwood.com. And if you guys enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you shared it with a friend. So this is one of those, text it to a friend, post it, however you feel comfortable. We would love if you helped spread Molly's message.